Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, here we are again. Hello, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of Book Off with me, Joe Haddo. If you've never listened before, it's wonderful to have you with us. And if you're a regular, welcome back. It's good to know we're doing something right. As ever, I'm joined by two book lovers in the studio who are psyching themselves up for the book off a bit later on. To my left, with red boxing gloves on, is author and journalist Louise Doherty. Hello to you. Welcome. Hello, Hello Joe. And to my right, with the yellow gloves, is creative writing teacher and author Araminta Hall. Hello to you. Hello. Welcome both to the podcast. And thank you for braving public transport <laughs> to come on Southern Rail and join us. Yeah, it was surprisingly good today. <laughs> was it really? Yeah, but you've got to get <laughs> home, remember. That's true. <laughs> you were travelling off peak, so I think it's... A, yeah, exactly. The, the homeward bound journey is going to be a bit different, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Louise, the last time we saw each other, we were at the Costa Book Awards, a little emotional. We, we were. It was very emotional to see the late, great Helen Dunmore win the Costa Book of the Year. Uh, she'd already won the poetry section, and uh, as I'm sure lots of people listening know, the Costa is one of those ones where they divide it up. There's best poetry book, um, novel, first novel, non-fiction and children's book, and then there's a bit of a face-off between the five category winners. And there was so much love for Helen in the room, mm. and her family were all there. Her son and her daughter gave a wonderful acceptance speech of the prize. So it was it was a bittersweet evening because everyone was so thrilled for Helen, but so sad that she wasn't there to see it herself. Yeah, but as you say, just such a, a lovely tribute. Tributes all round, actually, you know, from her family, but from everyone in the room. Every, think, very much so. And it's called Inside the Wave. We shouldn't neglect to mention that. But it is a wonderful, wonderful poetry collection. Mm. I would urge everybody to read it. Not one that we're talking about today, but certainly one that could come up in future book-offs, I think. Probably. I think so, yes. Oh. And um, Araminta, you and I were stuffing our faces at some sort of Bijou London restaurant the last we time were. we saw each other, weren't we? I know. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty ni- nice afternoon. I was going to say, a very nice way to spend an <laughs> afternoon, I know. And this was sort of in celebration, if I can say that, of your forthcoming novel, which is, which right. is out in it's May. My very kind publishers took 
some select people out for lunch. I don't know how I managed to get an invite to it, to be honest with you. I'm going to have to have a word with my publishers, yeah. I think. I'm, I'm not sure there's any lunches pre-publication where, where I come from. In well, favour and favour, favor, I'm going to be on to them. Yeah. <laughs> I've started something here, haven't I? Um, so let's, well, let's talk about that novel. Um, our kind of cruelty, which, yep. as I said, is is published in May by Century. So this is your third. It book. is my third book, um, yep. and a very twisty thriller. Tell tell us about um, Mike and Verity. Right. Well, this novel is told um, from the point of view of Mike. It's um, first person, and we're just totally in his head. And they are a young couple. Well, I say young. They're 30, which some people probably That's don't young. think so. Oh, for me, it's young, yes. And um, they um, um, have had a very intense nine-year relationship, but Verity has moved on and she is marrying someone else. Um, and Mike simply can't accept this. And um, he is convinced that the marriage and their whole life is a game because they did play a strange game together when they were together. And um, it's just sort of exploring the mind of someone who is obsessed with another person and what that can lead you to do. Um, And also it ends with a sort of high-profile trial. In the trial, I'm sort of trying to um, question how we as a public see men and women in relation to sort of sexuality and the law mm-hmm. and culpability. I mean, I'm looking at Louise, I'm speaking, because obviously Apple Tree Yard was <laughs> <laughs> covered very similar ground. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm sort of, I, I, you know, I think we've still got quite a long way to go mm-hmm. with seeing women equally to men in, um, in relation to um, culpability, really. Well, yeah, I would agree. And you're nodding along there, Louise. Uh, Very much so. I mean, that was very much the same territory as Apple Tree Yard, in particular the way that a woman's morality is always viewed Mm. through the prism of her sexual morality. Absolutely. um, That historically hasn't been the case for men up until now. But it's fertile ground. I mean, we can't have too many novels about that, I think. And I think it's interesting to see the way that that might change in the light of the Me Too movement, which we've seen and heard a lot about, because... It's the first time I can really think of as a rather ageing feminist where men are being judged for their sexual conduct with the same kind of sort Mm. of shaming public exposure that women have been and it's it's been very very interesting to watch whether or not it's sort of will produce long-term progress in the way women have viewed sort of obviously remains to be seen but I think for a novelist that material is, is, is just a gift and obsessive love I mean yes. I'm working on novel number nine at the moment guess what obsessive love <laughs> yeah. is in there I mean I think it's you could take it right back through the history of novel right, writing exactly. I, I love the idea when people always talked about Apple Tree Yard and many other novels as being this sort of domestic noir, as if it was a new thing. And you want to say, what do you think Jane Eyre was? You know, domestic noir has been with us for as long as women have been writing books, and I think it'll be with us for centuries to come. Absolutely. But interestingly, as you say, fertile ground, and we're going to see maybe more and more writers, female or male, challenging these these topics a bit, I think. I think I think what's interesting about it though is that I think women I think men are being pulled up for sexual misdemeanor now, which is brilliant. Um, but actually I think when it comes to terms of day to day sexuality, which is what my book focuses on mm. as such uh, men are still um given a lot more leeway than women and um Verity, my female character, is judged far more harshly for this 
um, quite tame sexualized game that they play together. She's judged very harshly for it. And he's, um, it's sort of, with him, it's sort of, it's it's not really even an issue. And mm. I, I so I think Me Too has got a long way to go in terms of sort of just everyday sexism yeah. and um, sexuality. Yeah, completely agree. And actually one of the guests on, on one of the, the last podcast, Imogen Hermes Gower, who wrote uh, The Mermaid, Mrs Hancock, was talking about how she wanted to write about those women of the sort of 1800s as people and not just this sort of comical floozy or this sort of loose mm. woman which was all they're known for and actually get behind who they were and the interesting things they did. And, of course, that is that, that sort of leaps couple of hundred years to, to now and it's this it's the same sort of story it's the same sort very of much thing. so I mean when we were just talking about Jane Eyre there one of my favorite novels is Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys mm. which of yeah. course is the story of Jane Eyre from the first Mrs Rochester and I think the the reclaiming of those female stories from classic novels is also very rich territory and there's been some fantastic writing there over the years. Louise your latest novel is Black Water which I think, was that published about a year ago now? It was actually two years ago no. for the hardback, but it's a year ago for the paperback. A year for the paperback, so that's of course. why you Sorry. might think it's more recent. Goodness me. Where's that gone? I, it, that's what my publishers keep saying to me every time they tap their fingers on the desk and wonder where the new manuscript is. And I go, oh, gosh, is that the time? Really? You've been busy. You're busy. But you're, you're not one to, to shy away from traumatic subjects in your books. So... Just tell us a little bit about John Harper, because there are probably people listening who haven't read your latest book. Well, Blackwater was talked about as if it was very different from Apple Tree Yard, but in actual fact, I think there were quite striking similarities. They both have a central character. It, the story is from their point of view and their characters with dark secrets. And in the case of Blackwater, it opens in Indonesia in 1998 on the island of Bali in a remote hut um, up in the hills and a man called John Harper is waking up and he's unable to sleep and he's listening to the sounds on his roof which is you know the squirrels and the monkeys and the cicadas and the geckos and he's wondering whether it's the start of monsoon rain because he is convinced that when the rains begin men with machetes are going to come and kill him. He thinks the killing squad is out there and they're waiting for the rains to begin to cover the sound of their tracks as they mount the side of the valley to kill him. And um, he's in hiding. He's in hiding from the people who've employed him for 30 years and he's in hiding from a very dark secret of his own. And what becomes apparent as the novel progresses is that what John Harper is really afraid of is not what is going to happen. He's afraid of something that he himself has done. He's been in Indonesia 30 years previously uh, for the massacres of 1965. He's done something very terrible. And when he imagines young men climbing the hillside to kill him, it is actually his younger self that he's thinking of. And the big debate of the novel is, is he, is he paranoid or not? Are people really going to come and kill him? And the next day he meets a woman in the bar. There has to be a woman in the bar, really, it's doesn't there? There's got to be a woman <laughs> um, in a bar, And they yeah. form a relationship and he starts to talk about his life. And in many ways it's that relationship that it is his undoing because that's when he starts to open up about his past mm. to a woman called Rita who has her own dark secrets. And the central drama of the novel is can, can a man uh, find love and redemption uh, if he's not honest about his past? And also can a country like Indonesia find peace and security and democracy if 
it is not honest about its secrets in its past. Um, the killings of 1965, very tragic story, completely unknown uh, in the West. Up to a million communists or suspected communists killed um, when Major General Suharto, the military dictator, came to power with the aid of the CIA and mm. British and American arms and encouragement. And then 32 years of repressive rule and there's never been any truth or reconciliation process in Indonesia. So really, I suppose Harper who's mixed race, um, half Dutch, half Indonesian. He's a metaphor for Indonesia itself and any country that's uh, struggling to emerge from the dark times of the Cold War into a kind of modern liberal democracy and, and how they go about doing that is something I find quite fascinating. Now, you two have never actually met before. No. But I thought that we'd probably all get on because I, I sort of get the sense that you're writing within a sort of similar genre vibe and I would po- probably describe you as sort of thriller writers is that is that fair or well I I never know I don't know about no, you Aaron I, I, yeah. I, I always feel quite strongly that it's not my job to say what I am I think it's my job to write a story whatever stories mm-hmm. in my heart to the best of my ability and then I hand the pages to my publisher and I go here turn it into a book shaped thing <laughs> and they do it and they slap a cover on it and certainly, I mean, Apple Tree Yard, which was called a psychological thriller, that was my seventh novel. Mm. And before that, I'd written through three contemporary novels with women characters. I'd written two historical books. I'd written a book that was shortlisted for the Costa Prize and longlisted for the Orange. And then I gave them the Apple Tree, Apple Tree Yard, which I thought of as a feminist indictment of criminal justice. And they went, gosh this could be a best-selling thriller. And I went, really? <laughs> and anyway, they did a brilliant, brilliant job. They marketed it that way. Um, and it was it did my first bestseller, which was very, very thrilling. But I, I don't know about you, Araminta. I, I kind of think that's not my job to mm. think of myself no, as I, in a category. I completely agree. I mean, when I wrote my first novel, I had absolutely no idea that I was writing what was then termed a psychological thriller. Um, but I'm really happy to occupy that ground. I think thrillers are a fantastic way. I think they're a very open genre, actually. I think that um, we've become quite obsessed with genre recently. I mean, not recently, over the last um, 10 or longer years in publishing. And I think actually, like we were talking about Jaina earlier, I mean, that is a psych- that would be marketed as a psychological thriller now. And Absolutely. a lot of the great classic female writers um you know i mean wuthering heights is certainly a psychological thriller and rebecca you know i mean all of they're all psychological thrillers and i think that um we this the, the psychological thriller lets you explore politics relationships um the legal system i mean it's a really, really good ground for feminism i think i mean because i'm the same as you i i you know feminism is always very front and centre in the idea of what I want to write. And so, uh, you know, the thriller to me seems like the perfect place to explore these. And I, I you know, I love the, um, I love page turners in whatever genre they're in. I love to be told a brilliant story and thrillers do that really, really well. Very, very much so. I mean, there's such fertile ground for exploring moral dilemmas Absolutely. as well. And historically, um, male writers have done this as well. I mean, Graham Greene, you know, John le Carre, um, you know, even George Orwell, or I recently read um, Rogue Male by Jeffrey Household, oh. you know, and that is a story about an assassin fleeing from the people who are hunting him. It couldn't be more psychological thriller. And yet it's also a really intense examination 
of one man's moral choices and really his desire to die um, because the person he loved has been killed and his de- his desire for revenge. I think the the boundaries are always blurry for authors and I think we it's very useful to separate the two issues. There's a marketing issue, which we're all part of if if we want people to buy our books, and no disrespect to publishers who have to do that to get the books on the shelves. But there's a completely separate issue about what an author feels when she's alone with the story in her head. And I think, for me, divorcing those two is a really quite a healthy process. Yes, you have to do that. You can't... I don't think you can ever think, I'm going to write a thriller or I'm going to write a romance. You know, that... You just have to write the story you want to tell. I can't think of anything more paralysing than sitting down thinking, right now I've got to be gripping. Yes. yes. Every now and then I get emails saying, can you come and talk about how to write a best-selling career? I'll think, search me. Yes. I, don't, you know, I would be absolutely, my mind would be a total blank if I did it that way. This is, see, I love that. That's why I love that question. I love talking about genre and, and, and you know, whether whether you, authors feel pegged into it or whatever. Um, and I did the same with... Um, with two authors who I who I dubbed sort of comic writers and got two very different responses uh. from those. <laughs> it's just very interesting, isn't it? You know, because it is interesting. At but the I end think, of the day, yeah, Aramint is right to say that the great thing about psychological thriller is it's so broad. Yes. So yeah. I think you'd have to be a bit peevish yeah. to to be annoyed with that. Yes, there are exactly. other labels I would be a lot more upset mm. by than yeah. psychological. It's thriller. a wonderful sort of umbrella genre, isn't it? Yeah, you can it really, really is. you can really go off. You're from the coast, from near my old hometown. Um. Uh, Araminta, do you do you write down there? Do you are you sort of quite quite happy writing at well, home? Or? I yes, I, I mean I live in Brighton now, but I was born and brought up in London. So um, most of my novels, all my novels to date, have been set in London. Um, um, but the book I'm working on at the moment is set. Um, in on Berlin Gap, which you Joe, I know would, it well, yes, know very well, yes. Um, but to everyone else, would mean very little. But it's just a very remote and beautiful stretch of coastline with very strange history of erosion and creepiness. Um, but um, but yes, no, I write at home, so um, yeah. And there's a hotel on Berlin Gap that's sort of but it's gone. It's gone, isn't it? Because yeah. it, the cliff there was a hotel. And it was falling away and falling away. Yeah. And they, they even t- they thought about moving it as well. Didn't they? I think they tried it. to move. I mean, there were seven houses and uh, and that's actually on Beachy Headmore. There were seven houses and a hotel. And yeah. I think there were three houses and no hotel yeah. now. It's, it's, a, it's a very... It's a very evocative coastline. Evocative, that's the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And and I guess you write in London as well, Louise? Being, I do, being although here, do I don't write at home much. I mean, I do emails and admin and all the other stuff, the kind of management of one's career that you have to do at home. But I go to cafes a lot. I could write a very detailed guide to the cafes of North London. I know who keeps their loos clean. I know who gives you a free biscuit. Um, I know who plays loud music and what sort. And... There's something to do with the fact, even though my my children are grown up now, it's a kind of hangover from the time when being at home meant being a mother. And I find if I'm at home, even if I go to make a coffee and there's no one else in the house, the minute I flick the switch on the kettle, I'm thinking, oh, I better take the chicken out now so it defrosts, (laughs) or maybe I'll just unload the dishwasher. And then it's my domestic head on. And 
I, I can do rewriting and all the extras at home, but for that actual first draft, the kind of that really kind of kicking the idea around your brain type writing, I I need to be out of the domestic arena and you're, you're, um, yeah. I take my laptop and uh, that's what I do two or three hours. You're so right because I am so guilty of that. I <laughs> constantly am unloading a dishwasher and, <laughs> and putting a load of washing on and thinking about something that I shouldn't be. But I find I think it's something to do with living in Brighton where every second person is in a coffee shop right with a laptop. That as soon as I go, I'm so distracted. I just want to know what everybody else is writing and, and peek over people's shoulders. So yeah, I have to so at least at least at home. home you're the only one doing that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The only one distracting myself. Yeah. <laughs> Louise, I'd love to talk a little bit about the the scholarship that you set up, if I may. T- tell us a little bit about this. This this is a crowdfunding it's, it's It's my new passion, and it's very recent. Um, I did the MA in Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia back in the 19... 19- <coughs> <laughs> a lot longer ago than I care to remember, but when I tell you that my tutors were Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter, that wow. will give you a clue wow. as to how long ago it was. And really, it made me a writer. I, I wouldn't be here without that course. Um, my, I, I mean, heaven knows how I got my place because I was writing the most awful drivel at the time. But clearly, somebody <laughs> saw a glimmer of something. And it was a crucial year for me. It was the crucible in which I was formed. There was quite a lot of sobbing in the ladies' lavatory, as I remember. Um, not just by me, lots of other people. Um, and I, I feel very passionately about um, open access to that kind of course. And I was talking to UEA recently and talking about the missing demographics. And, of course, the big missing demographic, certainly amongst home students, is black and minority ethnic students, the BAME group, as we're calling them. So I suggested, they, they asked for my help with scholarships, and I said, why don't we create a scholarship for BAME students? Because a quarter of students who get their place on that MA are forced to turn it down due to lack of funds. And that seems to me really unacceptably high. When you think how hard it is to get a place on that course, which is a sort of gold standard for amazing creative writing. So I said, um, they have various scholarships, but I said, let's, let's create one. So that at least from that quarter who are turning their places down, we catch the BAME students who are so underrepresented um, in our literary culture. So I set up a Just Giving page, which anyone, if you go on Just Giving and look up Louise Doughty, you'll find it there. And really thinking, well, we might raise a few grand that will help towards someone's fees. And sent emails out to every writer I could think of, had a big party at my house. And to my utter astonishment and complete delight, we've raised over £45,000, mostly from writers. And writers are pretty impecunious. But, you know, (laughs) all sorts of writers uh, put in a tenner or a hundred quid. We've got a group of writers who I'm calling my angels who are putting in £1,000 a year for three years. And... What we're trying to do is we've got three scholarships of £15,000. So that covers the fees, which are 7500 and then the uh, the rest for living expenses. And we've got one a year for three years. And I, I couldn't be more thrilled and so impressed by my fellow writers' generosity, really, because mm. it is a crowdfunded um, scholarship. Uh, they tried to get me to call it the Louise Doughty Scholarship. I said, no, it's <laughs> no. <laughs> Martin Grandiose. And it is crowdfunded. So we're just calling it the UEA BAME Scholarship. It's advertised now on the um, UEA website. And I just really, really hope that we will catch some of those voices that maybe feel a course like that isn't for them because they don't see themselves represented there. They don't see themselves represented in our literary culture. Mm. And I can't think of anything 
I want to do more other than writing my own novels than encourage new voices, having benefited so much from that kind of encouragement myself mm. early in my career. That's just fantastic. Really, really, really great. And Araminta must be quite close to home for you, being that you I, teach at Yeah, I do, I do teach creative writing. I mean, I haven't actually taught and creative writing for about a year now because... Um, Life has got in the way, um, but it's. I really miss it. I absolutely love teaching. It's it, you find and you know you 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 learn so much yourself. You mm. meet amazing people. You know it is. There is something really incredible about teaching and helping people to find their voice. Um, but I did an MA as well in creative writing um, about um, ten or eleven years ago, and I did it at Sussex, obviously near to where I live. Mm. And I absolutely agree with Louise. It was the moment that everything switched for me to becoming a writer and to taking myself seriously and learning about editing and how to write. And it's, it's that you know, it is such a valuable thing to do. And I so agree. So, you know, further education has now become out of the reach of so many people. I mean, you know, my son is about to go off to university and it is shocking. Yeah, my my daughter's about to graduate, and yeah. <laughs> the debt is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, uh, and it, it, it's such a shame. And I think uh, I don't know about you, Araminta, but I was very much the beneficiary of a free higher education. Yes, me uh, too. Neither yes. of my parents had been to university; they both left school in their mid-teens, and I went to university on a full grant Absolutely. with the fees paid yeah, no. and my subsistence paid. And um, my equivalent nowadays is being very heartily discouraged, and that, that's such a shame. Yeah. So it's it's just giving search for Louise Doughty. Search so for Louise we... Doughty or Writers Correct. Party, and you'll see it. It's the UEA BAME crowdfunded writers that. scholarship, and uh, yeah. uh, UEA has ring fenced the money. So even if you just put a tenner in, that will go directly to a student in need, and they do have to prove um, financial hardship as well. So it's not like we're giving the money mm. out willy nilly. They have to get their place through the normal channels. They have to be from that underrepresented BAME demographic, and they have to be in financial need. So the money is really, really targeted. Really is wonderful. And go on, name, name check as a few of your angels because they deserve it, don't they? They do. Tracy Chevalier, oh, David Nichols, Victoria Hislop, yes. um, um, uh, Ayobami Adebayo. And the donations on the Just Giving page are from people like Amanata Fauna, Bernadine Evaristo, uh, Sundeep Mahal. I mean, we've just, the, the list goes on and on. Val McDermott, Mark Billingham. Uh, it's the, the list of people donating on Just Giving is a bit like a kind of who's who of <laughs> contemporary fiction. And I think people's generosity is fantastic, really. I think writers themselves understand the benefits of a diverse writing culture. We all want that. We all want to discover new voices mm. because we're all readers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't agree more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, well, that's just fantastic. And, uh, and probably a good place to think about... The book off. Now, this is, as you know, where you each get three minutes to talk about, to pitch, to passionately sell a book that you love and you think that myself and all the listeners should read. Um, and this is this is potentially quite interesting, simply because you know, you, I wonder if we were talking about genre earlier. I put that big question out there and that tag. Um, what sort of thing do you choose to read, Aramis, or are you a sort of anything and everything person? Um, I am. I, I find myself drawn mostly to female writers of, of the last sort of maybe fifty years ago. I mean, my go-to favourite writers are people like Iris Murdoch, Margaret Atwood, mm. Patricia Highsmith, Carol Shields, writers like that. Uh, that's my comfort, amazing reading. But I do also read a lot of contemporary literature, and I don't really confine myself to genre. I don't really think too much about um that i mean if i'm as i'm as sort of swayed by anybody else i think by a good review or enough people saying to me this book is brilliant uh, it's very diverse what i read i mean i finished and eleanor oliphant is completely fine last night which i must be the last person in britain to have read it <laughs> um, and how i didn't read it before i don't know it was you know utterly charming um and i then that's i started gail, gail honeyman yes yeah, that's right and yeah. Then I started um, Reservoir 13 on the train up. Yeah. So, I mean, they're very different, but, you know, you know. so I sort of will just, yeah, just whatever. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, but I will always go back to Patricia Highsmith and Iris Murdoch and people like that. Those are the people I always, every sort of third book or so, I'll reread or read. <laughs> I don't think there are any new ones for me left on any of those writers, actually, but <laughs> if there are. <laughs> would you say you're... Choice for the book off is one of those comfort. Um, yeah, no, it's it is. Yes, I mean, I took it very literally. <laughs> I had to do a book that was um, um, for me. It is a classic, and it is also, um, you know, yeah. If you absolutely made me say what my favourite mm. book was, it would definitely be in the running for my favourite book. Right. And it's also a book that I think falls between genres. It was published eighty years ago, but it actually really falls between genres. So. Okay, we'll find out yeah. what it is in a minute. Um, and Louise, for you, reading habits, and do you read while you're writing? And... I do read while I'm writing. I, I read a lot of non-fiction as well as novels. What I find is that when I'm on the first draft of my novel, I tend to be doing a lot of research for it, yeah. and quite often that involves a lot of non-fiction reading, um, books about people who do the kind of jobs that my characters do, yeah. histories of uh, the area where the novel is set... 
And then I move to reading fiction when I'm rewriting, because that's when I really want the language of fiction in my head, in the same way as if I was learning French, I'd be reading a lot of French. When I'm rewriting and playing with sentences, then I like to be reading novels. But as I'm in the first draft stage of novel number nine, I'm reading a lot of non-fiction and particularly narrative non-fiction. And I think the very, very best narrative non-fiction does have all the power of a novel as well. A great um, non-fiction writer can you know, conjure a sense of place, description, and can also use the tricks of plot. And my recommendation, it just happens to be the book I'm reading at the moment, and I'm only halfway through it. So wow. let's hope they don't blow it with the second <laughs> half because I'm about to really, really recommend them. Good. So, and it's a non-fiction book? It's a non-fiction right. book. Right. Yes. Wow. But I couldn't agree more with you about how good narrative nonfiction could read as fiction. I just I completely oh, agree. And I some and I find myself getting, you know, with the right book, I could get lost in it just like I would anyway. Very much so. You know. So this is very interesting. We've got a, a, a classic going up against mm-hmm. um a, a nonfiction, very much contemporary novel, because it was only published last year it or was, something. It, yes, it? Right, and okay. it's just on a prize shortlist. Oh, so. oh. I say. Now, I'm delving around in the pockets here because I, I like to flip a coin, but I don't think I've got one. So um, so I tell you what, we're going to... Araminta, you get to choose whether you go first or second, and Louise, you get to choose whether you have a bell or a honk, OK? So um, would you like to go first or second, Araminta? I'll go first and get it out of the way, then. Right, good choice. And um, Louise, would you like um, a bell to ring you out or would you like the horn? Oh, I'll take the bell, thanks. The You're horn sounds a little aggressive. It's a bit aggressive, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds it like being in is. a circus. <laughs> <laughs> because I sit here with headphones on as well, sometimes I forget how loud it is in the actual room. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, I just sort of honked it in, a, in an author's <laughs> face and wasn't really thinking about it. Um, so just before we start then, Araminta, you're going first. Tell us what book you are talking about i am talking about rebecca by daphne de maurier oh it's a true classic indeed and 80 year you're right 1938 it's this wasn't it? year it was published it was pub- it's 80 years this year um you're going to have three minutes on the clock you don't have to use them but as soon as you get to three i'm going to be honking you out okay, okay. so it's over to you uh three minutes on rebecca by daphne de maurier over to you Raymond. Well, Rebecca is as i said sort of simply one of my all-time favorite novels um and i think We probably all know the story, so I'm not giving too much away by saying it's a young girl um, who marries an older man, is taken back to his um, very privileged life where his dead wife is, I wanted to say haunting, but she's not haunting. She is totally occupying the space. Um, Every bit of furniture she's chosen, every... Um, command to the servants, um, everything, all their social life, it's all down to Rebecca. And, um, of course, there's also the character of Mrs Danvers, who is was Rebecca's um, faithful servant and um, is um, a very creepy character. But um, what I love about Rebecca is that I think you can read it at any time in your life, um, from a teenager to an adult. And, um, and it's the one book in my life that I constantly reread not just once or twice but I, I I actually don't know how many times I've read it and with each reading you find out more and you see more and I think it's also a book that as you age you see it in so many different ways and you sympathize with different characters um and for me also it's one of the great psychological thrillers um um at a time when I don't think it was it well it wasn't it was sold as a romance which is bizarre <laughs> because Max is about the most unromantic character I think that you could hope to meet. Um, 
<laughs> but the most important thing for me about Rebecca is that I think it's a really, really important feminist text. Um, I think that the three women are the three states of women at, at that time. They're, and they are all um, looked after um, emotionally, physically and financially by Max, who is vile. I mean, he's a manipulative, horrible, scheming man who has done a terrible thing as well, which I won't say in case there's anyone out there who hasn't read the book. But um, And it, it also plays very much into what we were talking about before, about how Max is forgiven a really horrendous crime um, and Rebecca is vilified for um, very normal behaviour. I mean, the more you look back through the novel, the less you can see what she actually did. Um, and of course, then our unnamed narrator, who is he, she is just Mrs. De Winter, you know, the second Mrs. De Winter. Um, she is totally infantilized. She is she has to accept lots of terrible things that um, Max has done and does to her. Um, and then there's Mrs. Danvers, who has to obey Max because she's paid. Oh my goodness, you're going to honk me, aren't you? <laughs> oh no. Um, so I will finish by saying, um, really. Um, if you don't want that, it's just a beautiful story. <laughs> the f- look on your face when I pick that's that. So you look, look. That's brilliant. That's quite intimidating, isn't it? I'm not sure if the belly's going to be any easier or not. I was trying to be really subtle then as well, so that, to not put you off your stride. I think you d- that was pretty blooming good though you oh, got you got everything you. in there well, you do know I have to say it just made me love listening to you remembering that Philip Larkin line he used to say whenever he got depressed he would draw himself up look in the mirror and say I am Mrs De Winter now Philip Larkin doing that as well Philip Larkin that was brilliant very very good pitch well done and a great start a tough act to follow I have to say <laughs> um, but what is Following it, Louise, what book have you chosen? I have chosen the non-fiction book Ghosts of the Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Parry. Okie doke. Well, your three minutes starts now. Ghosts of the Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Parry is a wonderful work of narrative non-fiction. It's about the Japanese tsunami that occurred in March 2011. At almost a single stroke, 18,500 people were killed in northeast Japan. It was the sing- biggest single loss of life in Japan uh, since the bomb dropped at Nagasaki. And I've come to it very recently. I'm still only halfway through, I'm going to fess up, because it's been shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize. It's on the most amazing shortlist, which involves people like Harry Kunzru, Elizabeth Strout, uh, Moshin Hamid, uh, Sally Rooney and John McGregor and so on. So who knows whether he'll get the big prize. But I've loved his work for a long time. He wrote a very interesting book about Indonesia called In the Time of Madness, which I read when I was researching Black Water, and a really stunning true crime story called People Who Eat Darkness, which was about the murder of Lucy Blackman. Um, in Japan. And I think it ranks with In Cold Blood and the, the great true crime stories. But I think he's really surpassed himself with Ghost of the Tsunami. He's lived in Japan for many years. He speaks fluent Japanese. He travelled up to the northeast of Japan in the wake of the tsunami. And he really gained the trust of a lot of the families who lost friends and relatives and homes, sometimes lost everything. And in particular, what he does that I think is quite brilliant is, I mean, how do you encompass 18,500 deaths? Well, you choose one individual story. And the running thread throughout the book is the story of a group of children, 70 
so children who died needlessly. Uh, the earthquake came. They all, were all evacuated to the car park of the school. Schools in Japan are very solidly built because of earthquake risk. And then the teachers kept them in the playground for an hour, for 50 minutes, 51 minutes, and then the tsunami came in. And there was a steep hill at the back of the school. And if they had climbed that hill, they all would have survived. It was the only school where there was significant loss of life. So... What Richard Lloyd Parry does is he talks to uh, the parents of children at the school and then he circles round and round this issue of responsibility, the bureaucracy in Japan, whose responsibility was it to evacuate the school, why did the teachers keep them in the playground, even though some of the children said, sir, we must climb the hill. And within that, he encompasses a lot of the other stories of things that happened in the tsunami and other people who died. But the novel constantly circles back. And this is why I was saying great nonfiction can have the plot of a novel because we return again and again to this tragedy. And each time we do, we find out a little more about what really happened to that group of children. It's really compulsive. Very good. I hope you're impressed. I managed to finish my sentence as I saw you reach for that bell. All right. Um, yes. So again, I saw your eyes darting towards. I was maybe I should keep these like under the table or so you can't see. Um, again, another brilliant pitch, Louise. That's uh, that book sounds fascinating. And how how good it must be to be halfway through it and have uh, you know brought it to the table it today. It is. It is wonderful. But I think when when you said that you'd like me to enthuse about a book, I mean the book that you're reading that you're in the middle of at any yeah. particular time, that's always going to be the easy choice, isn't it? And that's yes, that's I was going to say it's on my bedside table, but actually it's also in my bag yeah. and it's, <laughs> it's everywhere I, I, with I'm you. so much into <laughs> it that I'm taking it with me because the thought of being stuck on the tube for 10 minutes and not having it to read would be yeah. really really annoying. I love the the, the that the author has got so ingrained in sort of the Japanese culture and so so trusted. Very uh, much so. He's been a newspaper correspondent there for yeah. many, many years. So it's not a question of a journalist just, you know, flying in, grabbing the headline story and flying out again. He's very, very knowledgeable about Japanese culture and history and even the nuances of language, you know, to, to what extent formal language is used in something like an investigation into the deaths and to what extent colloquial language is used. Yeah. And obviously there's... There's no substitute for that. I always remember Truman Capote said in um, Music for Chameleons, his essay collection, and he was talking about the writing of In Cold Blood, which I think everybody thinks of as, gosh, you know, what a great story, almost easy to write such a great story. And he said, my friends all thought I was mad to spend six years wandering around the plains of Kansas. You know, and that's why In Cold Blood is a great book. Yeah. He put six years into interviewing everyone he could think of and wandering around the plains of Kansas. And I'm sure that Ghosts of the Tsunami took Richard Lloyd Parry many, many years, but it, it really shows, it really pays off. Yeah, putting that time in and putting that sort of personal connection in as well. There's no substitute for it. I only just recently read In Cold Blood, actually, uh, uh, last year. Yeah. And that is a... It's a marvellous book. That is a marvellous, marvellous book, isn't it? Um as is Rebecca, of course, Araminta, yeah. and uh, you know, the, I love the fact you—it's that—it's that book for you that you've just reread and read and read countless times. You know, it which is, is it's the only book. I mean, I've read lots. There are lots of books I've read twice, yeah. but it's the only book that I go back and back to, and I know the story back to front, and I still am surprised by things, <laughs> and I'm still. Surprise! I still see more things in the characters, and I'm. I think it is a book that, yeah, the older you get as a woman, the more angry it makes you. Actually, yeah, yeah I could believe that. Uh, I was having a, a conversation about the rereading of 
of books, actually books that you love, um, not so long ago, because it's something I had haven't really done much of until quite recently, and I've just been just selecting books that I love that maybe I haven't read in five, six, ten years, and um, you really do get something out of a good book, a second, third read, don't you? You do. I think you also have to be careful, though. A couple of times I've come a cropper by rereading favourites, say, from early 20th century, and picking up on things I didn't pick up when I was young, like, you know, casual anti-Semitism, mm. you know, that kind of, right, you know, those yeah. kind of remarks, you know, misogyny, of course. And sometimes I'm shocked by the fact that as a young enthusiast, there were things that I missed. And then you reread as a more politicised older adult and you think, gosh, how could that not have interfered with my enjoyment before? And you can end up quite self-critical. And that to me is a very sort of odd facet of reading the way sometimes a much loved book from one's youth actually doesn't really Mm -hmm. uh, withstand a second reading a few decades down the line. I'm quite scared of rereading old favourites, actually. <laughs> Maybe I'll try with Rebecca, though. Yes, Rebecca. No, I, I, I mean, I think it's true that we read the classics, you know, like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and Rebecca. We read them normally in our teenage years, I think. And um, I think they all can stand rereading as adults, actually. And um, I, th- I think you get a lot more out of them than you did, than I... Well, certainly for me, I think I, I think you read them quite innocently when you're 15, 16, and I think you're more prepared to take stories at face value. And, of course, all these writers were... They had points to make, and they were writing about the times they were living in, and I think it's easier to see that when you... When, as you become an adult. Mm. But I totally agree with you. There are some things that you reread and you think, oh, my goodness, that's, yeah, that's awful. I didn't see that first time. It's the same with films as well. You know, there's some films that you watched, or certainly I watched in in my youth, um, that, that are very fond memories. And then you go back, you think, oh, I'll watch that film from yeah. the 1990s again. And you're like, oh, my God. They can be this awfully is just, clunky, you know, can't they? Clunky well, and sexist sex, and homophobic and, is, you know, just, oh, goodness. My my um, teenage daughter's watching Friends at the moment on Netflix, the whole lot, and I'll walk into the room, okay? I mean, even she actually, she said to me the other day, my God, I can't believe you used to watch this. It is so sexist. And I watched an episode with her and I, yeah, I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, some of it really is. I mean, it's I mean, it's still one of the greatest series ever made on television. <laughs> but it is. No, you're right. And incredibly, you know, just sort of throwaway references to being gay. Oh, absolutely. You know, just some sort of awful stereotypes in there. But yeah. it's funny to think that it, it, it just shows that it's aged. Completely. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to the books again, uh, the part where I have to base base the decision on the pictures <laughs> because they're both brilliant books. And if I hadn't read Rebecca, I would love the sound of it from your pitch. And I haven't read Ghost of the Tsunami, but but already want to go and sort of pick it up and actually explore maybe some more of his books. You were, you were talking about another two there, um, Louise. So I think, I think because of what we were talking about earlier and the fertile ground and the way that you two are writing, Rebecca is such an important feminist text and you are annoyed by it as you get older and the more you read it. I think I'm going to take Rebecca. 
<laughs> I don't know what the appropriate response for that That's is. That's okay, it's fine. I don't mind losing to Rebecca. I think I'll take that one on the chin. But there are no losers here. There are. There are no I'm losers going to here. Ghosts of the Tsunami, so... The great, the great thing is, I mean, the complete ruse is, uh, you know, we get to talk about two brilliant books and hopefully people are listening think, yeah, I'll pick those up as well. Um, as well as the two authors' books that we have on. Um, Louise, you mentioned your sort of writing another novel I am yes. novel number nine, novel yep. number nine. I'm 70,000 words in and counting I'm at that stage where I'm obsessed with word count <laughs> uh, so originally I thought it was going to be a short novel I thought it was going to be 70,000 words long and in fact I believe I said as much to my agent and my publisher and my agent laughed out loud and he said Louise you always say that and apparently every book I said oh this is going to be a short one anyway I'm nowhere near done uh, there's another 20 or 30,000 words to go at least and I'm at the phase that I, I call to writing students the muddled middle where mm. it's all a kind of morass um, so I'm just hoping I'm going to come out the other side of the muddled <laughs> middle soon I'm sure you will um, but of course Blackwater is is out and published and available um, as is Apple Tree Yard and all your other novels and we must co- uh, focus on, on the brilliant thing that you're doing with the scholarship as well and donate to that if we can I'll certainly be going on and, and joining that a list of uh, yes. contemporary writers, you know, just to have my name next to them, you know. <laughs> but yeah, that really is a wonderful thing you're doing. And Araminta, your third novel, as we talked about, is is out, and your sort of hopes for it, your readership. Oh can you even goodness. can you even think about that, or are you just happy to? No, to, I just wake out? up at four o'clock every morning thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, uh, oh God, I don't know. I mean. You know, I feel like a mother at the moment. I just want it to be happy. <laughs> yes, of course. But you've had, I mean, you've had some amazing quotes from fellow writers, have, haven't you? And I've some been really good praise. Really lucky. I mean, yeah, it's been. It's, that's what I love actually about um, the writing community is how supportive everybody is and how it really lovely. is true. It is. It's so true, isn't it? It's so yeah. people are so generous with their time reading and. Then saying nice things, it's so it's such a lovely. Well, it is it's such a lovely thing to be able to do. I mean, we're so lucky we get to read books in proof stage as well, which is a real privilege. Reading books before they yeah. come out, but well deserved. All of those um, quotes, I'd say, Thank it really you. is a, a wonderful novel. Thank Our you. kind of cruelty, which is uh, published by Century. It's been an absolute pleasure having you both here, and I knew you'd get on. You see, I just <laughs> knew it. Thank you for spending the time and joining us, and best of luck with the with the new novel and best of luck with finishing the new novel. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.